Welcome to the Crafting Character Podcast. Steve Carter here, and I'm so excited for today. See, often I have lead pastors and teaching pastors uh, have a conversation about the craft of preaching um, and also uh, the conversation around character, because we always want to be the kind of people where our character leads the way. Uh, but today I want to do something a little different, and here's why. Um, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to go on an overseas uh, mission trip, uh, and I, I sat on a bus next to a guy by the name of Steve Cuss. Now, it's a great name, but he's even got a better accent. He's from Perth, Australia, um, but he's been a pastor at Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado. And what I became so fascinated about Steve was he wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And I ended up reading it and it just deeply, deeply resonated. And this was before COVID. This was before uh, a world where it seemingly feels like every decision uh, seems to tick off 50% of the congregation. And I, I found myself returning to this book. And so what I wanted to do is not look at Steve's preaching, which he's a great communicator, very thoughtful. Um, I just wanted to have a conversation as we kick off 2021 about managing, leading, and managing our leadership anxiety. And so, uh, Steve, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us on the Craft and Character podcast. You know, you, you launched Craft and Character when everyone was launching a podcast. So I feel like like it, it, the podcast world's getting more saturated, but craft and character, man, it's been amazing. The last, I, I listened to Chuck DeGroote and then you had uh, Scott McKnight and Laura on and what a great podcast. I, I love, I'm so honored to be part of this. Oh, well, thank you, man. Well, I, I, I again, you, you have this thoughtfulness. It's one of, one of the pieces I've just respected about you. It's just, um, and I listened to a number of different podcasts, uh, just even in preparation for uh, this interview, because I, I, I really wanted to hear different people and the questions that they asked you. And I listened to this one uh, from the Harvard Business Review. And, and, and here's a, a, a woman who did a great job. She's not a, she's not a believer, and she was even a little skeptical of having you on there. But, and again, this is just credence to how great the book is. She read the book and was so blown away that she was like, it's, she says this in the intro, like almost bypassed her bias of what she thought a pastor might be because the words in this, this book were so meaningful and spoke to her. And, and so I, I just wanted to like say for anybody listening, you're probably sitting here going, I don't struggle with anxiety. Or maybe you are saying, I struggle with anxiety. I want you to hear this because I believe what Steve has to share today will literally transform your understanding of what anxiety is. So Steve, maybe we just start with first and foremost, what's your definition for anxiety? Great, great question. Yeah. Anxiety is such a broad, it's a word that covers so much territory. So the, the form of anxiety that I cover is what's clinically known as chronic anxiety. So there's other forms. Grief is a form of anxiety, uh, PTSD. But chronic anxiety is always based on false need and false belief. So if I don't get what I think I need, I get chronically anxious. 
And that's why some people say, oh, I'm not an anxious person. I'm, you know, I, I don't worry much or I'm not afraid of much. It just, I, I kind of ruin parties. I, I can show you your anxiety in 60 seconds or less, especially if you're, if you're married with a spouse nearby. <laughs> you tell me you don't feel anxious and I just look at your spouse and say, okay, how do you know when he's anxious? But it basically chronic anxiety, which is the most common form of anxiety a leader carries. That's why I call it leadership anxiety. It's simply like all the times in your life where you don't get what you think you need. You don't get the last word. You, you don't get understood by a critic. Um, you don't get to get people's approval. You didn't think the sermon was very good. All of these things. That's what generates chronic anxiety. And every one of us have anywhere between 15 and 50 sources of chronic anxiety in our life. 15 to 50. And, and I, have you in your ministry life felt any more of those 15 to 50 than in 2020? Yeah, 2020 has been the great exposure of leadership anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as you know, and probably your listeners know, I, I cut my teeth in ministry in hospital chaplaincy, trauma chaplaincy. I was 24, 25 years of age. I was stupidly young. And that, that's where I learned that the emergency room does not create the crisis. It exposes the crisis. So, you know, you've got the person comes through on the gurney, but then you've got the family coming a minute or five minutes later, they whatever situation they were in as a family is only revealed by the crisis. I think 2020 for pastors, that's what it did for us. It, it didn't create our anxiety. I think it's just peeling back the layer, the veneer and exposing. And so, yeah, I'm talking to a ton of pastors that are genuinely struggling. Like they really are, whether they're at the end of the rope, they're like, they feel like they've never had to deal with this before. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I respect so much about you, Steve, is, is you, there is a healthy merging of you know, psychology, therapy with deep, deep theology. And sometimes I think we, we tend to kind of bifurcate these realities. And some people are like, theology, therapy's bad. Or all therapy, but almost forgetting the, the story and the life and the way of Jesus. But I heard you once say that there are four words that kind of guard and guide your life. And, and there was transformation, peace, life, and freedom. Um, and, and it's how you try to see, th- these, see this in the world around you. Can you just speak to that for a moment? Yeah. If chronic anxiety is based on false need, that means it's based on false belief. And it's pretty embarrassing. Like I've been a Christian three decades and the amount of things I still believe I need that I actually don't need, it's pretty humbling. And, and if, if chronic anxiety is based on false belief, the gospel is always based on true belief. Mm. I got fascinated by the, the simple idea that your average therapist and Jesus of Nazareth actually want the same thing for you. Yes. Yes. Love, transformation. I was like, what? So just the simple idea of studying transformation tools on the therapy couch and sifting them through the gospel. Because you're right. There are some people that put the gospel down. I think it only works when you're centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at least in my life, I, my life has been transformed spiritually by understanding my chronic anxiety more than one more Bible study or more prayer. Like, 
problem with Western Christianity is, is our solution is too often try harder. If something's right. not, oh, just try harder. So prayer life not working, pray more. I'm one of the few pastors I know that say sometimes prayer is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> all, ha- all that happens is your chronic anxiety grabs prayer and turns it into another legalistic solution. Um, it's not very popular when I say that people get, (laughs) but it's true. You know, how many preachers have you heard say you should just pray more and no, there are other tools that Jesus has available for us that actually encounter the grace of God. And and Steve, I'm sure you've seen this too, that the tragedy I think is how many pastors are better at proclaiming the love of God than believing it. Wow. I think my life mission is can if I could help pastors believe what they so eloquently proclaim. And I don't see that as a bad thing. Like people, I don't blame pastors. I think it's because we're others focused. We're quite selfless as a general rule. But what if we actually believed and experienced what we proclaim? You know, what would that yes. be like? And that's yeah. that's what I'm trying to help people do. I, I think it's I think it's so important because again, those four words, you know, transformation, peace, love, and freedom. You know, can we receive that? Can we believe that it's available for us? And what's what I often find is there are many, many communicators who can who have mastered the craft of preaching, and they can speak words of peace, but their heart is in pieces. They can speak words of love and grace, but they're motivated by shame and fear. And so, when I hear you say that, it's you know how how am I receiving the fullness for me? And out of that place, being able to articulate, um, not just transfer information, but speak from a transformed place. And, and, I, and I, I just love that. I want to go back to something you, you kind of said, you know, you're 24, you're, you're, you're doing this trauma work and you, you kind of set this, this experience up of like walking into a room and you're having to take inventory of what's happening in the room. And I read a line that you said once, every caregiver has to understand that we affect the room that we enter in. So in one sense, you affect it entering in, but also in a trauma situation, everyone else that's already in that room is affecting the temperature and the feeling of the room. And then when I read that, I kept thinking about 2020. I kept thinking about the pastor because, you know, whether red state, blue state, whether certain open the church or don't gather, whether wear masks, don't wear masks, whether say Black Lives Matter, please don't say Black Lives Matter. Like everything and recognizing here is a pastor walking in, affecting the temperature, and everyone else has their own perception. Um, but I think sometimes we don't even think or are aware that we as caregivers affect the room. We're just trying to people please and read into that. Can you speak to that for at all? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a spooky thing to realize because when you walk into a room, you're not always paying attention to how you changed it because you, you're in it. Like you're always the star of your own movie, right? Yeah. But if you just take a step back and just start to notice how your presence impacts the room. Every pastor has a story of going to a party, like a birthday party of a congregant and suddenly shutting down the fun just by showing up. And we all hate it, right? I've done that too. I've walked into a room and, and I walk into a circle of guys and they're all, they've got their beer and we're having a great chat and I grab a beer. And then 
they actually sometimes will overtly say, well, I was going to tell a joke, but Steve's here. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not God's police Like, it's So I think every pastor already intuitively knows this. I, I'm just trying to train us to harness that knowledge and do something about it to m- make positive culture. So it's fascinating. And, and that's the gift of trauma chaplaincy is everything's so heightened that it gave me this incredible training to notice every time I walk into a room that where it's already tense, what happens? And then how do I learn to notice what's going on between people? Because if I'm not aware of what's happening between people, because anxiety always spreads in a group. And again, people already know this. The most common solution is to look at gossip and the capacity of one negative person to infect other people, to adopt their opinion, even though they didn't have an opinion about it. Like you've been on any church staff, you've seen this. You do a church staff meeting, a group of people never speak up. And then after the meeting, they have their own meeting. They've infected the room. Uh, and, and so you walk into that. If you can notice the dynamics between people, you become a really powerful leader. Okay, so you just, you just alluded to that gossip is a form of anxiety. Help, help me understand that. Yeah, so, try, one, so one of the things I do is I help people understand the dynamics of anxiety. One, one dynamic is simply called triangulation. So anytime three people are in a relationship that only should have two people, that's triangulation. Uh, any, uh, any preteen drama, like my daughter loves Gilmore Girls. And because I love my daughter, I watch it with her, but only because I love my daughter. I can make two episodes and then I can't stand it anymore because the, the writers of Gilmore Girls and almost every teen drama and every reality show, they know these principles. And so they intentionally put anxiety generating techniques into the show to generate drama. And I can't stand it because I'm all about de-escalating drama. So triangulation, gossip. If you talk about somebody differently than when they're in the room, that's triangulation. If you cannot talk to somebody the way you talk about them, you're triangulating. And that's evidence that you are anxious. You are not able to have a calm, respectful conversation with a person. And I say this as somebody that used to work for a clinical narcissist. Like, I had to learn some of these lessons with somebody who was out to destroy me. Um, but you still have to, like, there's still dignity in that person. There's still respect of direct communication. My temptation to talk about him and not to him was really strong, but that's because I couldn't manage my anxiety. So, so if I go back to your original definition from that chronic leadership anxiety, you think you have a need that you don't really have. How does that connect from a dynamic with gossip? Because I just want people to, uh, to see this because I think that definition is so important. And I think even as I'm listening, there, there are moments where, man, I want to be able to not triangulate. I want to be someone who's, again, character leading the way that can have the same conversation in the room with that person and not bypass that. What, how does that definition work with gossip? Yeah. So if, if you are prone to gossip, talking about people differently than the way you talk to them, that's the simplest way I'd say it. It's usually because you don't feel like you have enough power to be able to talk to a, you're intimidated or you were raised in a culture that valued indirect communication. So just the very nature of talking about someone rather than to them, the temptation to uh, exaggerate. How many times, Steve, 
like as a, you know, you're a pastor. How many times have you heard somebody has a problem with you? And then when they come to talk to you, it's a very different posture than what you heard about. It's because they vented with anger and heat because you weren't in the room. It's like social media. The way you talk about people on social media is so different than the way you would talk to them. So all of that is evidence that you're in anxiety's grip. You need something. You believe you need something that you don't actually need. What you actually need is a frank, calm dialogue with that person. What, you, what, what, what the gospel does is the gospel forces you to not see them as a monster, but as a person with dignity who, no matter what they've done to you, deserves a dignifying conversation. Now, Man. we've both we've both been in situations where there's bullying and abuse. Like these, these are challenging situations, but the gospel gives you the power to navigate those situations with these, you know, calm, aware, present tendencies instead of gossip is evidence that you're being reactive. Yes. Yes. Time you're being reactive instead of calm, you're in anxiety's grip and not in the grip of the gospel. It's beautiful. And again, you go back to those four words, transformation, peace, love, freedom. That's what is we have access to, but in my anxiety, I, I, I like can't, I almost forget those four words exist and I, I want revenge or I want, I want this person, um, to be less than me, you know? And so all of a sudden you can, you know, and, and so I think it's fascinating is, is recognizing, man, what are those like almost defining values that are guiding and guarding, um, your life now? If I think about that, I do think in the church world, gossip, triangulation, that that's a real one. But I also think- Judgmentalism is another one. And yes. When you judge someone, you're anxious. Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, so, that's so powerful. I think another one is people-pleasing. Um, how does, <laughs> and again, I, I just keep thinking about this. I feel like so many of my phone calls with pastors who are in cohorts or pastors who are just reaching out, so many of them just- having to, to deal with that people-pleasing scaffolding because they, they, they used to be able to make everybody happy. For the most part, 90% of the people happy, 10% were going to be bad. But now it's like 50-50, and they don't know if they're walking into a friendly conversation or a difficult conversation. The criticism has just gone rampant, and I'm just seeing this chronic leadership anxiety overtake many, many pastors, many, many leaders, and they're almost afraid to make decisions right now. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a chronic people pleaser. I'm always concerned, Steve, in conversations like this, that I come across as not anxious. I, I'm as anxious as I've ever been. <laughs> anxious human being. And the founder of the theory I studied, Murray Bowen, he says to be human is to be anxious. Yes. He says, that's how you know you're human. So I never want to give the impression that I'm somehow Yoda or the Dalai Lama. Your accent kind of gives, uh, kind of helps you in that way, though. You know, like your accent, it helps you like seem like Yoda to me. I've been told that my accent buys me twenty more IQ points. <laughs> um, it's interesting you mentioned being an Aussie because Aussies, I, you know, I know you know a few of us. Um, we actually work very hard at the image of being laid back. So even that kind of Aussie, because that was me. Until I was a chaplain, I would have said, I'm a, she'll be right, laid back, no worries. Underneath that veneer was this highly anxious human. 
So I, man, I feel deeply, I take criticism really personally. Even now I've been in ministry 25 years. I take it probably more personally than I did when I started. So I have a lot of empathy for pastors that struggle with people pleasing. It's the shadow side of a strong gift. So you can't stop being a people pleaser because then you'll kill off the gift, that empathy, that your ability to know what someone's feeling, you know, that, that kind of intuitiveness that a lot of pastors have. So my best advice is to feel it um, and name it. And then depending on the person, oftentimes you can feed back to the critic what it's like. And because most of them have no idea. And then it also kind of roots out the bullies. Like I, I've got about six bullies in our church out of the, I don't know, a few hundred critics. And by critics, I mean, they have an opinion. They're not automatically critical, but they have not thought it through to the length that we have not wrestled. And they have a very strong opinion and they think what I need is to hear it, right? That's kind of the, like, do you really think I need one more voice? But out of that, I've got about six that I would describe as almost predatory. Like they enjoy cutting me down. When I share with people's feedback, when, when, when I share with them the impact on me, it definitely reveals who's who. Who are the bullies? Because they're going to double down on my vulnerability. And, and they're going to weaponize my vulnerability against me. Wow. So now I know. Okay, well, now I know. And now I know who you are and the kind of person you are and how little I'm going to care what you think. And so I then compartmentalize those five or six. I never meet with them alone. I always have an elder. I, I'm not open. My heart is not open to what they have to say. And then there's hundreds of people. My heart is absolutely open. Maybe I have done something wrong. And that, that's the other thing, Steve. Like one source of anxiety for a leader is the fear of getting it wrong, making a mistake. If you can die to that fear, you can hear criticism and say, you're right. Um, no, that's right. We did blow it. We did get it wrong. We did the best we knew how, but, but if you still believe the lie that you have to always get it right or look like you know what you're doing, I think then that plus people pleasing becomes really deadly for a pastor. Yeah. Definitely work. There's definitely work you can do to, to get a bit more resilient. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a mentor of mine who, when I was early on thinking about going into ministry, you know, he just said, Hey, um, you have to understand that you are going to let people down. You're not going to be able to meet people's expectation and you will be somebody's heretic. If you're, if you're okay or sort of okay with that, go into ministry. <laughs> if, if not, this is going to be a really difficult journey for you. Um, you know, what's amazing. I, I was reading something that you had written and you quoted someone, I believe their name was Jeannie Duck. And you, and you said, people will connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. And, and I was thinking about this because, you know, what's so tricky is for many of us, we're, we're in conversations or we receive an email or someone, you know, throws some shade at us on Twitter and right away, our brain starts connecting dots. And all of a sudden, we seem to be drifting from transformation, peace, love, grace, and freedom. And I'm almost going back subconsciously, I think, to experiences that I, or wounds that I have been carrying, that I've been unaware. 
but this person gets super, super close. And their words or what I am interpreting as their tone, um, and, and sometimes I'm not wrong. It, they are a bully or they are being mean, but it's, it's amazing that it's not just what this person is saying, it's what it represents in my life. You've talked about this, um, you've written about this, and you said most driven leaders don't know of the chronic anxiety they're carrying. Talk about how you almost in a moment can stop the pathological dots connecting that take you away transformation, peace, love, and freedom. Yeah. It's, it's real work. So like, wow, is a, is a real time situation. I got a text from a guy yesterday. He's a former elder of our church. Um, our families have known each other 15 years and it's a very innocuous text. Hey, uh, you want to meet and go for a walk together over Christmas break? Now, what is tricky about it is we would typically run into each other in soccer games and, and at church. So we haven't seen each other really since COVID, I think. So that text from him becomes a Rorschach test of my well-being. Now, he's a good man. He's had criticism before, but he's a good critic. He, he, sometimes he'll take like a cheap shortcut, but his heart is good. He's for me, you know. But still, all the things that go through my head just because this guy wants to go for a walk. Now, what does he want to go for a walk about? I have no, as the recording of this interview, I have no idea we're going for a walk next Monday. What's going to happen between now and Monday? I've got two options. I can indulge all the what ifs. And what it is, is one of the things that chronic anxiety does is you get historical. Is over time, you've, you've had this text so many times that's turned out badly. You get hijacked. You think it's yes. a walk and it's actually, hey, pastor, we need to that all of those reintroduce themselves with this guy's text. And it's, it's, the, it's the absolute discipline to learn how to observe your thinking pattern and compare it to the gospel. And so for me, that whole process, uh, if, if I didn't do that, I would be on a low boil of anxiety until we go for a walk. But now it's about an hour of work and what's true is we're going for a walk next Monday and he might have something to say. Or he might just be like, man, I miss seeing you at soccer games. Now, if it's the second one, I've wasted all that mental energy on the paranoia. But here's what's true. Here's what the gospel truth is. He's a good man. He loves God. He loves me. He served faithfully at our church. He has the right to give me his critical feedback. And I have the capacity to hear truth. And he may very well, like the worst kind of criticism is that cheap, uninvolved, right? That's right. That's the one I hate the most, <laughs> uninvolved. Without a name, without a name attached to it <laughs> or a burner account on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what's actually true is he could have some criticism that I can learn from. Yes. If I have the humility to say to this faithful servant of God, uh, then I don't have to be anxious about it. Um, but what's false is I have to prove something. He doesn't know the whole story. I, if only he see it my way. These are all signs of chronic anxiety. So it's quite a discipline. It's, it's hard to get people in a, in a less than a couple of hour workshop to really start. Because what I do in a workshop is I'll actually walk you through step by step and people yes. then go do it in real time. Um, but it's an actual several step exercise to but it, it starts, the, the number one, Steve, is 
do you even know you're anxious? Most leaders don't. That's yeah. the fact is you, you aren't able to name in the moment, I got this text and now I'm anxious. You know what's amazing is when I read your book, the, the first example um, that kind of came to me of where my chronic anxiety that I would never have called chronic anxiety, I would have never thought was anxiety, was the exact example that you just used. Because an ongoing conversation that my wife, Sarah, and I have is, I think I'm in trouble all the time. Not in my marriage, but from, from people who send me texts or an email like, hey, can we connect? Can we? I always create the story, what did I do? How did I let them down? What, what, did, what did I do wrong? And again, it's the, it's the broken three who on Enneagram Achiever in me that I'm like, I messed up. I, I didn't reach the goal. I didn't win. I, I hurt this person. And then I get around them and they're like, hey, Steve, um, I really love what you said here. And I'm like, oh, you're not mad at me? Like it was, it was like nothing. But I have spent 40 years of my life in this pattern. And what's so tricky is it's like reading your book going, oh, my goodness, this is a form. This is one of my 15 to 50 forms of chronic anxiety. But again, I'm not being grounded in peace and love and freedom in the way of Christ. All of a sudden, self-reliance and fear and worry all, you know, all under the, the guise of anxiety are just taking my energy. And then I miss all the God moments and I miss all the good and I miss all the beauty that's around me because my head is almost gone like lizard brain thinking and fearful over the situation. And I think you had this other line that just, just wrecked me. And I wrote it down. Uh, I remember like first time I heard it, it was anxiety shrinks the power of the gospel because it presents a false gospel. And if I remember right, a gospel of self-reliance rather than reliance on God. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. The, the chronic anxiety is what we depend on when we're not depending on Jesus. Wow. Can you say that one more time? Say that one more time. Yeah, yeah. Chronic anxiety is what we depend on when we're not depending on Jesus. And I love the way you, you just laid out for us a beautiful kind of picture of what is true versus what is not true. And, and one of the things you said as I was listening to you is I lost the vision of all the beauty. And that's what chronic anxiety does. I, I train people to see chronic anxiety as a domestic violence relationship. I used oh to work goodness. at Central Christian Church in Las Vegas with Gene Apple and with Judd Wilhite, both yeah. phenomenal human beings. And I was one of the crisis intervention guys. And a lot of the work we did was domestic violence. And I would watch these incredibly brave women struggle to believe that things could ever be different. And I think that's what chronic anxiety does is it, it actually has a gospel. It says it'll never be different. You're in trouble. Um, and what it does is, is the way you know you're anxious, the simplest way I know to tell people is when you forget that God is with you. And then the way I relax into the grace of God is remembering not only is God with me, like that Monday morning my, uh, walk I'm going to have with this guy, God's already there. Right, I am, right. When I go meet him, I'm walking into the presence where God is already at work. It's not on me. It's not on this guy. It's on us to enjoy the gaze of God together. And, and so therefore, in that context, if he has hard words for me, and it's, I think it's a 15% chance that that's what it's about. 
But if he does, God's at work. And so I'm there to learn and worship God. I can do that. Preempting every possible scenario, that's exhausting. But I can step into that meeting and say, God's here. And I'm going to enjoy God and the person that is made in God's image right here. And here we go. Wow. Um, I think it's I think it's so uh, just beautiful in the sense of when you talked about just I can worship God. Like again, it, it again, it's just a it's a a massive shift. And I I'm sorry I keep quoting you, but I just again there were so many lines that just stood out to me. But when you are interpreting mixed messages, you have to simply choose the message you want to receive, ignore the other, and see what happens. And I just loved how simple and practical that was. Because it, it is my choice. It's my choice to not allow all of the worry, anxiety, fear to take over, but really go, which one do I want to receive? What do I want to worship? What gospel do I want to lean into? And let's just see what happens. The other one is going to lead to more fear, which doesn't lead to great decision-making, which doesn't allow me to be present, which doesn't allow me to be actually a good pastor, um, a good husband, a good human. But the other one, Man, I get to rely on God and his power. I think one of the other uh, chronic anxieties that I find in pastors that I'm talking with right now is I don't know what to say um, in the message prep. I don't, I, I, there's so much that's happening in our world. And, and both of us is, you know, part of the, the majority power culture as white men, you know, um, but I think I think a lot of pastors right now seeing the pain and brokenness, whether um, around politics, around racial divide and and white supremacy and systemic injustice, wh- whether around just uh, financial and people in unemployment, rather around death and and like this global physical health pandemic. But I think even more, even around this global mental health pandemic, um, because I think the mental health side, again, that scaffolding, we, we're becoming more aware of it. Well, I, I'm, I just think that there are so many pastors right now who it's not the fear of public speaking, um, like most people have, but it's the fear of, do I even have something to say? How do you wrestle with that? Because again, I will always respect your thoughtfulness, but Man, in such difficult days, difficult seasons, on video, not getting the attaboys with the crowd for most people, like it's all different. Um, how have you wrestled with that? Yeah, I, I think the very first thing you said there was the struggle where they, the, the heart cry of the pastors, I just don't know what to say. Boy, that sounds like a really good thing to say to me wow. because it, it, it uncovers the, the false need. So what happens in anxiety is it's always contagious in groups. And so if you're anxious, you're, you're making your congregation anxious. If your congregation has expectation on you that's unreasonable, it's making you anxious. If you can notice and name that, now you can lead them a different way. One of the surefire evidences that a group is anxious is when they require certainty out of their leader in unprecedented times. And, and, you know, as I said before, one of the things I help people understand is, is dynamics that generate anxiety. So you mentioned a mixed message. One of the dynamics that always generates anxiety is ambiguity. Yep. And another one is when a leader doesn't know what to do and has to do something. That's a, 
the quickest way to help a leader understand their anxiety is put them in a situation where they don't know what to do, make them do something, and then try to help them notice what's going on inside them. And none of us know what to do. Uh, we, we made a decision. I, I was sitting down with some African-American sisters and brothers years ago. I think it was around the Ferguson riots and saying, look, I thought I understood. There's a lot more I need to understand. Um, what, what, what would you have me do? And they said, just, just name, just in your white suburban service, if a black person is gunned down innocently, just say their name. I'm like, well, we can do that. So I've been in that habit since Ferguson. And we are a very white middle upper class suburban so-called evangelical church. I don't think we fit that well, but that's what we look like. And boy, do I get heat for that. And it's because white people are threatened. And I had an African-American pastor say to me, he said, you know, you have white privilege when all we are crying out for is equal treatment and you think we're, you, you're being oppressed. You're being oppressed. Wow. wow. Like when we want equal treatment and you feel like your privilege is being threatened. That's what I've seen in my own church. That's what's happening is people, uh, uh, ex- rather than sit in the anxiety of privilege, we are diverting to stupid arguments about critical race theory. Yeah, yeah. Rather than listening to our sisters and brothers. And, and so if, if I can get up in my church and say, look, I have privilege and here's what that means. And actually as an Aussie, this is what I've done. I have more privilege than Amer- white Americans because I'm a novelty like Crocodile Dundee and the Crocodile Hunter, like all, all, most Aussies, we're kind of a novelty in America. We're kind of this fun, cool. I have even more privilege and here's what I'm doing with it. Here's what the gospel yeah. requires. Um, but I think also just saying, like every time we've announced a COVID decision, we're meeting, we're not meeting, we're doing 50 people, we're doing 100 people. We are always saying, we don't know and we might change our mind. So if you need certainty out of us, we're giving you clarity. And we are shifting the target on you. We get it. But again, that kind of vulnerability divides the bullies. From, the majority of your congregation is going to say, I disagree, but fair enough. Yep. And the minority is going to be saying, you don't have faith or whatever they're saying. Um, so we, you know, a lot of my anxiety work is helping people move a whole group through anxiety. And we just don't tolerate it in our church. The nonsense, the the arguing, the the partisanship, like the biggest frustration I have had in COVID, to be frank, Steve, is the amount of people that hear my preaching through a political lens. Yes. I'm an immigrant. I can't vote in this country. Yeah. I, I'm not a citizen. And, and I really am trying to show the gospel. And so many people are saying, ah, I know your politics. Yeah. Do not know my, I don't know my American politics. I do not understand American politics. I know that's unique to me with most. No, partners. I, I don't, I mean, I, unique to you in the sense of the, the Aussie piece and the not being able to vote. But I think the anxiety piece connected to something to say is in this day and age, and I think it kind of began 2014, at least I felt it where uh, I would refer to it as uh, political signaling. People would hear a word but that word was attached to, um, so if you, if you talk about refugees or you said Jesus was a refugee, well, then all of a sudden that signaled left-leaning um, and all of a sudden you'd get emails. Now, I could tell you that at Willow while I was there, we did a, a 5K for, I think, five years running for refugees before any kind of uh, 
political connection with th- that ideal. Um, and all of a sudden we're doing it year five and Hey, we're doing a run again for refugees thinking we've done this for, and, and people are like, why are, why are you doing this? This is left leaning. And I, are you I were the unborn. That kind of ex- exactly. And yeah. all of a sudden I just remember going, this was the greatest humanitarian crisis of our day at that time. Oh my goodness. And I just, I, I felt anxiety. You know, if, if I say something, I've got to be able to just be aware. And then I, I talked to this, this person who, um, would help write speeches, uh, for politicians. And they told me, I mean, this is getting even crazier. They told me that they have to consider every two words because every two words is what can be used as a headline and as a soundbite. You know, Trump says these two words, you know, Biden says these two words, you know, and all of a sudden, I think we've been trained with that. Now move Twitter, Facebook, all of that stuff. Um, it's, it's wild. Okay. I want to go to one let, more. Let just oh yeah. Speak to that. Cause there's, I, yes. I think just a simple tool for your listeners is that that path you just described is the path to death. That, that yeah. sounds like death to me. The path to life is to name <laughs> the dynamic. Yes. So the thing that you're feeling as a pastor, name it to your congregation. The, the anxiety 101 for group leadership is always put the anxiety where it belongs on the whoever's generating it, make them carry it. The reason pastors get so like burned out is we are, we are receiving people's anxiety and we're not putting it back on them. We, we like it's this weird sacrificial thing. We think we have to take it. So if your congregation is pushing you around, tell them, just tell them. And it's not in a pity way. You're not doing it as like, oh, woe is me. You're just saying, hey, I just want everyone to know I hear from a lot of you. And if only you could talk to each other, you would be in a fight in no time because some of you are saying this and some of you are saying this. I'm not telling you this to feel sorry for me. I just want you to be aware of the dynamics that we are trying to navigate as a church. None of us know. And if you think you know, that's because you're anxious. You don't know either. You don't know better than we do about this. If you think, you know, this, and I've done these moves with our church. And again, your average person is going to say, fair enough. And even if they have an opinion, they will typically come and say, hey, I know that your stuff's put 300 hours into this. I wonder if you've considered this. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to the, the alternative where you're now trying to how do I do it? Or so I'm a big believer in naming the dynamic, putting the anxiety where it belongs, letting people, that's how you develop disciples is you, uh, I, I don't know if Andy Stanley or Craig Rochelle, one of those guys said, you know, if you, if you want to uh, develop a volunteer, you delegate a task. If you want to develop a leader, you develop delegate authority, right? That I don't remember who first said it. I would simply say, if you want to develop a disciple, delegate anxiety. Yeah. Let people wow. carry their own anxiety. You don't have to carry it. You know what I think has become one of the the biggest of the 50 chronic leadership anxieties um, in 2020 and something I, I didn't I didn't ever really consider, even though a three in unhealth often does this, um, is conspiracy theory. Is I, you know, and again, it's it's part of the creation of false stories, but I've just watched in that longing for certainty and not having it. And, and basically the creation of, I've got seven puzzle pieces and it's, it's a 
2000 piece puzzle, but I can tell you what this is going to be. And just, again, the energy with that, and instead of literally doing the hard work to delegate anxiety as a disciple, it's almost creating and fostering more. And I love how you said, it's like a wildfire, is that it spreads. It just spreads. And so, um, yeah, I just, I, I'm seeing that, but I love the idea. Again, it, it showcases uh, not the pastor as the hero, um, it, it shows them as a human saying, here's what I can carry, but here's where you have to do the work to carry. Here's what I can carry. Here's what the cross is meant to carry. And I just, I, I, there's something in that that I think is really, really powerful. I want to shift if, if, if you don't mind, um, because I think, again, this podcast is, is yes, I want people to get better as communicators. I want them I believe in the power of the spoken word. I mean, right from Genesis 1, the, the world is chaos and God speaks light. And I, I just, an order into the chaos. So I, I am all about helping people get better at the craft of communication. But I, I care about pastors. I care about people. I care about um, their hearts, their souls, their, them becoming um, the fullness of who God created them to be. And I think this conversation around anxiety is so important because so many of these pastors and leaders, like you said, they're they're driven, they're carrying these anxieties. And I want to, in a moment, talk about uh, capable life because there there's something that you've that you are doing that I'm just uh, so intrigued by. But I, I was wondering if you might be able to just take a moment in your own life, and you've kind of done it with this Monday, upcoming Monday meeting, but what are, what are the personal practices that you have kind of had to foster or cultivate in your life so that you can become aware, that you can delegate it well? Is there anything that you could help the, our audience kind of learn and maybe apply to their life starting today? Absolutely. Yeah, what a great question. The first thing you can do is you can uh, believe that getting it right two out of 10 times is an A+. plus. So everything we've talked about, I, I do these practices. You know, I've been doing this for 20-something years. I, I'm at somewhere around a four to a four and a half out of 10. That's after 20 years of this work. So if, you can, if, if two out of 10 times you can relax into the peace of Christ instead of being in the grip of anxiety, that's an A+. Plus. And I blame baseball players for this. Like baseball players, they, they, they lose seven out of 10 times at bat and they're paid millions of dollars to be a 70% loser. The second, <laughs> second thing is all God expects from us is an exactly human-sized leader. That's all God has ever wanted. And it's our own internal expectation of ourselves, our false self, that is putting all this pressure on us to be more than we are. Step three is to study yourself and get all the help you need so you can learn to know when you're anxious. Like, Steve, I can't tell you how many leaders I talk to. They simply don't know. And it's not evil. That it's because they're others-focused, they're kingdom-focused. It's not like from a, it's actually from a really good place. But step three, once you've got the two out of 10 squared away and the human size, when am I anxious? What? It's always the same things. So you will deal with feeling like you're in trouble the rest of your life. And all the tools I've given you will never change that. 
all that will change is it won't have the it won't uh, you won't have the damage that you've been dealing with. It, you'll notice it, and then you'll be able to overcome it quicker. So, learning to know when you're anxious in your body physiologically. So, in my life, it's the spinning mind. My mind ruminates. That's how I know I'm anxious. And then I've also trained my family. To, they'll just tell me. So, when my daughter was nine, I asked her to tell me when I was anxious. And so when your nine-year-old daughter is saying, dad, you're not present right now. Like I'm trying to tell you something. I think you might be anxious. That's a gift. That's a gift from God. The, the fourth thing I do, th- those are all kind of foundational, is I make a simple list of people, places, and activities that make me connect with God. And it's an ongoing list. I've, I've made it. I think my list is five years old. I've got about 85 things on the list. And it's very specific. Some of it's pretty graphic because it involves my wife. So just on the G-rated level, sitting on a couch, holding her hand is different than making love. Those are two different things on the list, but they're life-giving. Popping popcorn on the stove, walking my golden retriever. I've got a list of friends in my life that are life-giving. So 86, um, Assisi, Italy is on my list. I've been there one time in my life. I was there for 19 hours, not even a full day. And I don't know if I'll ever get back, but it's on the list. And I encourage people to make a really comprehensive, really concrete list of what are the people, the places, and the activities that make you feel like a kid, uh, connect you to God. Because some anxiety... You can use these tools we've been talking about, but but John says perfect love casts out fear. So as I really like like as I did a big study on theology and anxiety, one of the things I learned about it is sometimes you can't like work your way through it. Sometimes you have to displace it, mm. and you cannot be anxious and feel loved at the same time. It's impossible. So there are times where my wife will simply hold me for a minute or two. And I'm, I'm literally physically and emotionally wrapped in her love and my anxiety just dissipates. And you cannot be anxious and laughing at the same time. <laughs> Laughter displaces anxiety. So making a life-giving list, because what anxiety does is, is kind of you were saying before, like you lose your imagination, everything starts to get dark and doomy. If you've already made a list, all you have to remember is to pull it out. You don't have to like suddenly be imagined, what, what can I do? I've got 85 options in any given moment. And so one of the things I do is I use the list reactively. When I notice I'm anxious, I pull out my list. Um, I'm an acoustic guitar player. I'll sit down and play guitar for 10 minutes and my anxiety is displaced. Other times I use the list proactively, like putting money in a bank and I'll calendar these things. I'll make sure like my last uh, life-giving lunch was yesterday. I made sure there's a pastor in town. I really enjoy him. We got together for a long, slow lunch and I came away just, it was so helpful. So, so I use my life giving list proactively and reactively. That would be like the simplest. I've got a lot of complex tools, but that would be like the simplest thing anyone can do. And I got to say, Steve, I'm going to threaten your audience. Every time I do a workshop, people love this and about 10% of them actually do it. Yeah. They're like, that's great. I, I need to get around to that. So now what I've learned in my workshops is I make people start filling it out in the workshop and then I make them calendar it. That's good. That's good. You got to put it in ink. I think that's a, I think that's an amazing thing, you know, and I always will tell people, um, I can tell you what fruit you're bearing, um, by, by you showing me your calendar. 
You know, so I think it's, it's uh, you putting that into practice yesterday, that lunch showcases its importance to your soul care, your personal self-care, your personal discipleship. Um, so how much, you know, people care about systemic poverty. Just show me your calendar and I'll tell you how much you care about systemic poverty. Preach. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, okay. Last, lastly, talk, talk a, a moment about capable life. Yeah. Yeah. So the, my book, um, I almost didn't write it because I've been teaching a class at our church for 10 years and it's this stuff. And it's a, it's a one to two year class. You can do year one, you can opt in for year two. And the, the way the book got written is a friend of mine who's connected to HarperCollins uh, learned about the class and said, you've got to write this in a book. And I said, no, it's an experience. It's, you can't read your way to transformation. And I think I even put in the book. I promise you won't change if all you do is read this book. Right, right. So since the book came out, and particularly since COVID, we've really been trying to figure out as a church, how do we replicate what we do as an experience, a capable life, the website is capablelife.me. Um, capable life is our best attempt to replicate this experience. So it's a, it's a set of 60 to 80, 10 minute videos. So every week it's just a short tool. They're all in modules and themes, but it's easy to navigate. We tried to make it where there's no excuse. Like everyone can watch one 10 minute video a week. It's an online discussion forum. So you can develop a peer group. You can submit case studies and questions like my case study of the walk coming up. You can right. submit that. What do I do? What are tools? Uh, and then it's a monthly zoom with a certified coach. And then there's opportunities from there to go deeper. And then every other month it's a masterclass. So for example, if you want to know about how your family of origin impacts your leadership, there'll be a masterclass on that. So it's like these four elements and we're just really just exposing people to what we do. It's, I, I think the price is $28 a month. We're trying to make it as cheap, like for anyone's professional budget. Um, and it's just a way where you can have shared language. So most people, right now we have, I think 180 people from six countries. We have missionaries jumping in. It's been really cool. But most people are, are grabbing three or four friends and signing up together so that they can watch the videos, jump in the Zooms, but then on their own time, they, we're just giving them a way to talk about this stuff with, with all these tools. That's I love that. I love that. Hey, um, is, there, is there one location where people can learn more about you, uh, like a website and buy the book or, and, and learn more about Capable Life? Yeah, yeah. They can just go to stevecusswords.com. That's my website. Stevecusswords? stevecusswords.com. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I got a phone that's, with my last name. Oh, that's so fantastic. That's you can see my book, my podcast. I do a podcast on this and then you can get to Capable Life from there as well. Awesome. Hey, Steve, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, seriously, uh, friends, really, really consider uh, it. I think this conversation um, around anxiety and our ability to learn how to delegate it properly I promise you, your decision-making, your leadership, your own self-care, your own presence for your family, your staff, your congregation, your own presence to, to God and your own imagination, um, it, it, it will change you. So um, I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, go, to, go get the book, but, but, but really consider, hey, maybe this capable life might be the, the next best right step for you um, because uh, our congregations desire it, but more than that, um, you need this. You need this for you um, to be the fullest disciple and human that you can be. Um, thanks so much for tuning in to Crafting Character Podcast. I, I love to help you in any way that I can. 
Um, you can always email me at steve at steveryancarter.com. I'm grateful for my friends at CDF Capital who just consistently um, show up to, to help allow this podcast to happen. You can learn about our craft and character communication cohorts. We're, we're kicking those off again. We've got a number of amazing, amazing faculty members that want to help you get better at the craft of preaching, but always ensuring that your character leads the way. You can go to craftandcharacter.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, feel free, rate it, share it, subscribe, and let us know what you think of it in ways that we can improve. But with that, friends, I pray, I hope that this week that you will interpret the messages not based on old examples, um, old stories, old patterns, but on words like transformation, peace, love, freedom, and the gospel. Let's not be people of self-reliance, but let's be people like Steve said, who rely on God and his power. Much love, everyone. See you next time. Grace and peace. Peace.